0: Thank you, my brother. Good thing somebody didn't forget and remembered where we were at, amen? I'm just teasing. Now, I had to go back and look it over myself. Let's open up to Romans chapter 4, verse 1, to remind you what we've already gone through because it's been about a month since we've been through Romans. Romans chapter 1 talks about Paul's call to reach the Romans. And then uh, he explained he hadn't been there yet, but he had hoped to come and visit He then talked about the power of the gospel comes by faith and that when we hear it, it brings us the power of salvation and the righteous will live by faith. He then talked about the sinfulness of humanity, brought up uh, homosexuality as the apex of people's sin when they are debaucherous, even to the point of breaking the natural order of things. Then he began to lay it into the Jews. And by the way, it's always going to be Jew and Gentile throughout the whole book. So he kind of started off by rebuking the Gentiles and then he goes to the Jews in chapter 2 and he says, uh, hey, you guys think you're better than these folks, these pagans but you're actually not because in the things you're judging them on you yourself are actually doing and he shows them that they're not living the right way and they try to hide behind the law but the law was never meant to save the law was only meant to show you needed to be saved and then in Romans chapter 3 He summarizes the accusation both against Jew and Gentiles that everyone is under God's judgment because they've rightfully sinned, and we learned about the depravity of mankind, and he strings together a lot of psalms to discuss that. And then towards the end of chapter 3 he gets into the righteousness that's revealed by faith. And remember, that goes back to chapter 1. That's from the gospel, the just shall live by faith. And so now in Romans chapter 4 and 5, he's going to use Abraham as an example. And Abraham is the first one to really get the Jewish call. So before this, God had his people, Noah, Enoch, those like that, Joseph, um, and all of these others in, in Egypt are going to come after Abraham, and Moses is going to come after Abraham. So, so Abraham is going to kind of split between God's people and the beginning of Jewish people, and the Jewish people won't have their nation until they get delivered from Egypt. And actually, uh, Abraham gets that prophecy that you're going to have a people They're not going to occupy this land for a while, and they're actually going to be in bondage for 400 years before they get the land. So Abraham is a pivotal person, and the promises that he gets in the prophecies are quite relevant to what we're learning today. But more more specifically, Abraham is an example of those who are saved by faith. That's just simply what it is. He's going to point to the key figure of starting the Israelite nation, and he's going to say, how was he justified? Was he justified by all the things that later Moses would get or even circumcision, which he did? No, he was justified by faith before Moses was ever born and all of these other laws were added on, and he was justified before he was ever even circumcised. Is everybody with me on that? And so when God called out Abraham, Abraham gets the command of circumcision. Before that, they had not been circumcised. Noah had not been circumcised, Enoch, et cetera. So Abraham's really the first one to get that. And even up until that time, they could eat whatever they wanted. So they didn't have a dietary law. They didn't have a priesthood law. Obviously, they didn't have a temple. And so what he's going to use as Abraham as an example is what Moses gets many years later, all of these commands to help the nation of Israel be a nation, and God's chosen people is not relevant to salvation now for the uh, the Gentile, because it wasn't relevant to the first Gentile getting saved, in other words, Abraham getting saved. And so he, and then he's going to kind of answer back, like, well, does that mean the Jewish law was pointless, and, and there's no point in being a Jew? He's going to say, no, there's, there's much benefit in that, and God gave the Jewish people this for a reason, but based on that alone, their genealogy and the law, they can't be saved, they have to be be saved as Abraham was saved. So he uses Abraham as like the first Jew to really be saved by faith, and then he uses him as a Gentile becoming with the Jewish people being saved by faith. And so he'll talk later on that Gentiles get grafted into the Jewish people. Gentiles never become Jews. So in that one example, technically, uh, Abraham is the first Jew, but in the sense of him being a Gentile, there was no Jew before him. Does that make sense? So he's gonna be the example for both Jew and Gentile. And then like I said further on in Romans, we're gonna see like in Romans chapter 11, let me just make sure that's it, is that he's gonna talk about Gentiles getting grafted in as well. Yes, Romans chapter 11, talks about the engrafting. Yes, Romans chapter 11, verse 17 says that some of the branches have been broken off, and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root. Do not consider yourselves to be superior to those other branches. If you you do consider this, you do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say, then branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in, granted because they they were broken off because of unbelief. And you stand by faith, but don't be arrogant, but tremble, for if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you. You Either consider therefore, the kindness and sternness of God, sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness, otherwise you will also be cut off and so this is uh, very important to understand because the church age is also considered the time of the Gentiles, so until the time of the Gentiles will be fulfilled, uh, the Jewish people will only come in in small number. And then the Bible says at the end, they'll come in in great number. After the rapture, there'll be 144,000 witnesses. And Paul talks about that as well. So we don't have to get into all of that. But the the big example, um, uh, the big point that we wanna see from Paul's example in Romans 4 of Abraham is that Gentiles and Jews are both saved by faith and the Jewish people are special and important, and they do have promises that will be fulfilled all the way up until the end of time, so we don't forget about them. And then Jews don't become Gentiles when they save or get, get saved, but Gentiles getting grafted in with the Jews. That's why all the promises to the Jews in the Old Testament apply to Gentiles now, not on behalf of our genealogy, but by, by our spiritual rebirth. Because as we'll read right here, Abraham becomes the father of many nations, not just the nation of Israel, he becomes the father of many nations. You all ready? Amen. There was a good introduction, right? Romans chapter four, verse one. What then shall we say that Abraham, our father, our forefather, according to the flesh, discovered in this matter? What is the matter they're talking about? Salvation by faith apart from the law. What did Abraham discover in that? If in fact Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. So he's gonna say, when did Abraham become righteous? Before or after the work of circumcision? When was it? Before, go to Genesis 15 now. Let's learn about Abraham because it's very important to see his life story and how it applies to the new covenant. Genesis chapter 15, let's just start in verse one. We have plenty of time today. Romans four is not a long chapter, so we got plenty of time to read it and to include uh, these stories from Abraham because he's the key example in 14 and 15. After this, after what? After Abraham, at this time he's known as Abram, and which by the way, technically he's still Abram because during this time, he hasn't been given a new name, but notice the biblical writer still calls him Abraham, okay? So it's good to be technical, but if you're more technical than the, in the Bible, than the Bible, then you have a problem, okay? So it's okay to refer to him as Abraham because we all know who he is. When is this after? Because it says after this, after he rescued Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah after they got invaded by these other nations. So it says in chapter 14, at that time when Ampharol was the king of Shinar, Ariot, king of Asar, Kedarlamar, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goyam. These kings went to war against Bera, king of Sodom, Barash, king of Gomorrah, Sinab, king of Adama, Shembar, king of Zebion, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. So uh, we know Lot was living there, and I know I butchered a lot of those names, so just be patient with me on that. So Lot's living there. They get taken over, he, he gets taken over when these other kings take over those nations. Abraham as the good cousin, or um, uncle, uncle, right? Wasn't it Lot his nephew? Yeah, good uncle that he is, he comes and rescues um, Lot and them. Now, let's go to verse 15. After this, after he had delivered uh, Lot from the enemy and brought about this great victory, and remember in chapter 12 is when he's originally called, just to give you a little history there about Abraham. It says, after this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the the one who will inherit my estate is Eliar of Damascus? Look at that. And Abram said, you have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Because that's how he took what God was saying to him as God being his shield and reward is, well, you're gonna bless me with a great inheritance because that, in that culture, in that mindset, that was the way you were blessed. That was the greatest reward you could ever have was a lineage, and that's why we can never be so heavenly-minded. We're of no earthly good. We need to be so earthly-minded that we change the earth for good. We always need to be thinking through generational blessings and millennial reign and treasures coming from heaven to earth to rule and reign with Christ, and so that's the way Abraham saw it. Abraham at this time, he's like, if I'm gonna have a great reward, how's that gonna happen if I have no children? Is this uh, person from Damascus going to get my estate? In other words, verse four, then the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look up at the sky and count the stars. If indeed you can count them, then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And I think at any given time, there's hundreds of millions of stars available for a, a, a person to see on a clear night, especially in the desert when there's no light from cities around, you know. You could see hundreds of millions of stars right there. And he's like, man, that's what your offspring is going to be like. Abram believed the Lord, look at verse 6, and he credited it to him as righteousness, so right here we see that living by faith, having faith in God first and then works proceeding afterward is always has always been the plan or modus operandi that's Latin for mode of operation of God. It has never been works then faith. It has always been faith then works. We see that with our hero of the faith. He also said to him, "I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession." But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. So there's no sacrificial law at this time. This is just what God is telling him to do in the moment. Abraham brought, Abraham brought all these things to him, cut them in two pieces, or cut them in two, arranged the halves opposite of each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then birds of prey came down in the carcass, but Abram drove them away. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, know for certain that for 400 years, your descendants will be strangers in a country, not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated there. Wow, isn't that amazing? 400 years, uh, rather, this is uh, more than 400 years before his time. Remember, uh, it wasn't until after Joseph died that they started counting really that 400 years of of bondage. And Joseph is not going to be born until Abraham has Isaac, Isaac has Jacob, and then Jacob has Joseph. So this is probably closer to 550 years out that he's getting this prophecy. "'Know for certain that for 400 years "'your descendants will be strangers in a country, "'not their own, and they will be enslaved "'and mistreated there. "'But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, "'and afterward they will come out with great possessions. "'You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace "'and be buried at a good old age.'" And the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its fullness. So he's going to let these people keep sinning so they deserve the judgment that Joshua gives them to drive them out the land. So whenever people try to say it was unfair that God treated the Canaanites this way and that them conquering and destroying their land was unfair, no, it was God's rightful judgment. He gave them a chance to repent, and over time they wouldn't, and he knew that. So he's like, "I'm going to let it come to its full measure, and then I'll let you judge them. Or your, you know, the people will judge them. Your descendants." Verse seventeen: When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking pot, a smoking fire pot with the blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, to your descendants, I will give this land from the Wadi of Egypt to the great river Euphrates, to the land of the Kenites, the Chazazites, Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Raphaites, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. That promise still remains to this day. Isn't that powerful? Amen. Amen. So let's go back to Romans chapter four. What do we learn in this matter? See, Paul is talking to Jewish people who should be familiar with Abraham, and he's teaching the Gentiles who have probably only heard about him in passing. Now that they've joined the church, they're hearing more about the Jewish Old Testament, right? But now they need to understand both groups, how it applies. Do Jews give up the law and now live lawless to be a Christian? No, they see Christ as the fulfillment of the law, and then they live according to their conscience until the temple is destroyed. Then they'll live more like the Gentile Christians. We'll talk about that as that becomes more relevant. But then do the Gentiles become Jews to become Christians? No. The Gentiles see Christ as the fulfillment of the law the same exact way, and they live according to the teachings of the apostles. So here the Jews are looking through the law forward to Jesus and now learning how how to apply it. And the Gentiles are now looking back to Christ to understand the law. But for both of them, Christ is the fulfillment of the law. And so the Jews are going to temporarily continue as Christians, the ones who have been born again, in a Jewish setting until their temple is destroyed. When the temple is destroyed, there's going to be a dynamic difference then in how they practice their faith, because they'll no longer have a priesthood. They'll no longer have the sacrificial system. All of those things will have been done away with. And Hebrews actually tells us that. Go to Hebrews. The author of Hebrews is more than likely Paul. And Paul is uh, probably the reason why they say it's a little different than his other writings is because Paul is either having his sermon dictated out, by a scribe, so it's not his actual writing or the way he would normally write, or it's one of his disciples, like an Apollos or a Barnabas or somebody like that. Now, if you go to uh, Hebrews, let's go to say, I want to say where it's obsolete, where it is obsolete. I thought I had it marked in my Bible. Give me just a second. I apologize a little bit off the cuff here. Obsolete Hebrews. Hey, Hebrews 8.13. Faster than Google. Let's give it up for Pastor Jared. Amen. Faster than Google. Man, I have it all right here, but I don't have it highlighted up there. I knew it was at the end of a chapter, too. See, look at that. Let me mark this in my Bible right now so I don't forget. Right here. Amen. Get my goodies right there. 813. You got it up good, sir? Amen. By calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete. So that's going to be for both Jew and Gentile. They're in a new covenant. The old covenant is done away with. It does not have any saving power. And what is obsolete and outdated will what? Soon disappear. That's at the destruction of the temple. So there is a transitional period from the Jewish old covenant for the Jew into the new covenant. He gets time to transition. When does he know the transition is over? When the temple's gone. How do we now know, if I were to talk to a Jew, that that was a sign that the Messiah had to have already come Because once the temple is destroyed, it's too late for all the other prophecies of the second temple. How do I know that? Because of what Malachi says. Let's go to Malachi since we're here. Let's go to Malachi. Last book of the Old Testament gives a prophecy about the second temple that has to be fulfilled in that temple. Malachi. Malachi. Man, I can't get my fingers moving fast enough here. Here we go. Malachi chapter 1. Excuse me, not Malachi chapter 1. 3 verse Verse 1. Thank you. 3 verse 1. I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me, then suddenly the Lord who you are seeking will come to his what? His temple, the messenger of the what? The covenant whom you desire will what? Will come, says the Lord Almighty. Thank you again, the walking Bible man right there. Amen. If anybody ever on the streets wants to challenge me to a memory contest, whether they're Muslim or another religion, I'll just say you win. But let's talk the Bible. Give me time. Let me have my walking Bible with me. Let me use Google. I'll get there eventually. I know roundabout where they are. That's why I like the scriptures when they quote from the Old Testament because sometimes it says, a prophet once said. And and then like, as we're going to read today, it's David said. It doesn't say what chapter in Psalm it is. It's just David said. Amen. Okay. So if it was okay for them, it's okay for us. But it is good to know the reference. And so we know it had to have happened in that temple because Malachi said by the, by the Lord, the Lord speaking through Malachi, I'm going to come to my temple. Well, if it's destroyed, how is he coming now? It had to have been Jesus. There's no other person that fulfills all these prophecies. Okay, so let's go to back to Romans chapter 4. Abraham is showing us that it is by faith we are justified. Once we are justified, then we do all the good works. Let's keep going, Romans chapter four, verse four. Now to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. Now this is where we gotta prod the Calvinist. The Bible says it's their faith. Does God give us the gift of faith according to Ephesians 2 8? Yes, I believe that. Let's go there. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. So let's let's make the Calvinist argument for them. And then let's see if it holds up in this context. Are you guys ready? Go to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. I actually take their interpretation of the verse. So I accept it. Some Arminian non-Calvinists don't. I accept it, but. Let's read it. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. it is the gift of God. Some Arminians will, sh- will, will, will show that in the grammar, faith is feminine and the gift is masculine. So faith could not be included in the gift. But there's examples where feminines can be included with masculines. Okay? That's just a little short summary of that kind of uh, grammar argument so I don't need to go there. I actually accept with the Calvinists that when it says it's the gift of God, that the gift of God is incl- included in the gift of God is grace and faith. Because it says you've been saved by grace, uh, you've, by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. So the it to me is not just grace, it is also the faith. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God, that's in Romans. And so it's clear to me, we do not generate faith on our own. So as good Wesleyans and Arminians, we believe that provenient grace enables us in our depravity to have faith and to respond positively to God's word. Uh, People like Leighton Flowers and those who are traditionalists in their soteriology believe that once you hear the word, the Holy Spirit doesn't have to do any special work, you then can have faith and obedience to the word. We believe there has to be a step in between your obedience and your following of the word that is not regeneration, which the Calvinist says. The Calvinist basically says you have to be regenerated to have faith, and then you believe in God. So it's like you're born again before you ask to be born again. They actually believe your heart is changed, and then once your heart is changed, you ask God to change your heart. The 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 traditionalists like Leighton Flowers believes that once you hear the word, you're a neutral object uh, you're a neutral person that can now make a decision between good or evil. We are right in between them. We believe we do get to make a choice between good or evil, but we need an awakening of God's grace. We need God's grace to enlighten us. We need God's grace to activate us, to have the ability to do it, because otherwise we are left in our own downward spiral. It's like trying to jump out of a hole that has no bottom or trying to long jump while you're skydiving. And so we believe God has to to, to remove our spiral falling, are falling in our depravity and give us a foundation to stand on by giving us enlightenment. And this is where Wesley and others have used this scripture to apply to this process where it says in John 1 verse 4, in him was life and that life was the light of all mankind. And his light shines in the darkness and the darkness cannot overcome it. And so what we believe is that the light of the conscience that we have even seen in Romans chapter one can be activated as God is reaching out to us. So he activates the conscience. It is not a spiritual rebirth. It is not a regeneration. You don't get born again first and then asked to be born again. Calvinists have it backwards. You do get enlightened. You do get graced to make that choice to choose God. Otherwise, you would never choose him because you would only be in a spiritually dead state. Does that make sense? Okay, you can be free to further study that. So we agree with the Calvinist here that faith is a gift of God. Now go back to Romans. Because it's not gonna fit with what Paul is saying, if you think faith comes as a light switch that God himself turns on, that you don't have responsibility for to have. Because look at what it says in Romans 4, look at what it says in Romans 4 verse 5, however to the one who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the ungodly, their faith, Their faith is credited as righteousness. So the Calvinist to keep their system has to say that God gives you the faith to believe and therefore it's his choice to to save you and that's why you make the choice to be saved. So if God never would have first made a choice to save you, you would never make the choice to be saved. But is that what Romans 4 says happens? No, it's your faith. So just like we can't love unless God loves us, but then our love is our love. Just like we can't have faith unless God gives it to us, but he gives it to us to have ownership and steward over. So he enlightens us and gives us what? The gift of grace and of faith. Do you get it? It's a gift, but it's your gift, and it's your choice what you do with that gift. You can reject the gift as you see in the parable of the sower of the seed. Some don't receive it. And the one that has the hardest heart that the devil can come and take that seed is the one that doesn't understand it. That's literally what it says in one of the Gospels. They do not understand it and the devil can come and take it. Why? Because they've applied no heart to understand What did he say in Mars Hill? He said that that God is not far from any of us, and that he's placed us in these these times and in these regions so that we'd reach out and perhaps find him, because he's not far from us. So God is seeking us, he's seeking the Gentile through the conscience, through the through the creation, in other words, and all those who respond positively to the light that they're giving receive more light. And so Abraham is given light by God. His conscience is awakened. He now is freed to make his decision. So instead of saying we have just free will, we like to say as Arminians, we have freed will. It's freed. The will has been freed in order to determine its course and its destiny. It's not that God is determining it for us. Now, ultimately, does he know the decision we make? Yes, but it's our decision nonetheless. So no one will stand before God on judgment day and say, I'm only going to hell because you never gave me faith and turned on the light switch. He'll be able to say all people go to hell because they did not choose him. They rejected him. And then when we get to the passage on Romans about does not the potter have the right to do with the clay whatever he wants to make one for destruction and one for blessing? That is not talking about individual salvation. It's talking about does he not have the right to raise up the Jews and make them a special nation out of all the earth and punish the Egyptians and all of that? And then now doesn't he have the right to lift up the Gentiles and for them to be saved and become a great nation being grafted in and to punish the Jews if he wants? It's not about heaven and hell. In Romans chapter 9, it's about nations and how they're chosen and how God's plans can't be thwarted. And we'll talk about that because he quotes from Malachi, and that's why people like James White have to say, I don't accept the interpretation from Malachi applied... In in Paul's writings in chapter 9, he has to say Paul changes what Malachi was talking about to fit what he says. Is that not true? Have you listened to him say that? He calls that apostolic interpretation. He can change the context, but we don't have to apply to such ridiculous exegesis circus tricks. We take exactly Malachi's intent and apply it in the New Testament, just like Paul's not doing that anywhere else. Why is it he's not doing that here? Why is he not pulling those circus tricks here? He doesn't have to because he's speaking to the Jew that already understands these things but has not fully obeyed them. Or in one sense, they've been darkened in their understanding because they haven't pursued it okay? And so the idea is, as Hebrews says, they were supposed to pursue it by faith, but they kept going after works and they missed it. And so here in Romans, Paul is pointing them back going, this is, this is how Abraham was saved. It's not like we at the Jerusalem council just made up laws for the Gentiles and said, this is the way the church is going to be now. Yeah. This is the way Abraham was. Abraham's diet wasn't restricted. Abraham didn't have a priesthood. Abraham didn't go to a temple. And Abraham was justified before, he was even circumcised. So we're not changing it now for the Gentiles to somehow, you know, make it fit with their culture, like appropriating the gospel to fit in. No, we're actually showing you the whole fulfillment from Abraham till now. That was the point of the Jerusalem council. In the book of Acts, when they were answering, how do the Gentiles now live? Do they become Jews or do they follow the new covenant only? And the new covenant only is good because the new covenant fulfills the old covenant, doesn't do away with it, fulfills it. Amen? Amen. And then notice this, that their faith is credited as righteousness. Faith is not a work. So every time the Calvinist tries to say, well, what separates you, that You're the Christian going to heaven and your neighbor who's going to hell. And then if you go, well, I decided to to follow Jesus. And they're going to say, is that a good thing? And you're going to say, yeah, that's a good thing. So then you're saved by your good work to follow Jesus. And they're going to hell because they didn't follow Jesus. You are saying a salvation by works. And then they'll say, we as Calvinists say, there's no difference between any work I did and my sinner, di- uh, my sinner friend did. The reason why I'm saved and they're not is because God did the work, turned on the light switch. God saved me. And that kind of sounds pious in a sense, like they're really, ex- you know, exemplifying the sovereignty of God. But what's on the flip side of that? The reason why your friend's going to hell is because God didn't turn on the switch and they were doomed from the womb. But they don't want to emphasize on the... The basement of Calvinism. They want you to pretend it looks all nice up here. But downstairs, uh, there's some torture going on down there. There's some uh, true crime stuff going on down there. The basement of Calvinism is a scary place. It's a place where God created you to literally be damned for eternity based solely on his decision not to turn you on to him. But what do we respond back to them when they say, you just attributed to yourself a work that makes you better than the other person. We take them right here to Romans. However, verse five, to the one who does not work, but trust God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. Trusting God and having faith in God is not a work. It's their word game. And it's them arguing with Paul. Paul is specific. Faith is not a work. So according to our soteriology, you know, the, the study of salvation, soteriosis, salvationology is the study of, according to our soteriology, Christ did the work on the cross to save us entirely. We agree with the Calvinists there. We also agree that he gives us the gift of grace and faith by the word, the Holy Spirit, the preaching, etc. cetera. We agree with that, but what we don't agree with is that it's not our choice. It is our choice. That's why it's possessive, their faith. But the choice we make is never considered a work. What is considered a work according to Paul in the context? The works of the law. No one is justified that way. No one is justified by getting circumcised. No one is justified by keeping the Ten Commandments. No one is justified by doing all the things of the Mosaic law. Romans 3 says everyone, Jew and Gentile, fall at all of them. Because if you break one, you break them all. But why does he use Abraham as the example? Because how was Abraham justified? By trusting God. There's the understanding. That's why when we get into Romans 8 and the golden chain of redemption, some of the favorite passages of Calvinists and you know, those he foreknew, he predestined, etc., and then to Romans 9, we're not going to contradict Paul from Romans 4 and 5. We're going to understand that what this simply is talking about, the, the foreknowing and the predestining, is God knows the choice. That's why the foreknowing comes before the predestining and then comes all of the glorification and the the, the being formed into Christ's image. We're never taking credit for it. But does he reward us for our faith? Yes. He says it was given to us from the word by God's grace, but it's credited to us as righteousness. If it was never our choice, then why am I getting a credit for it? Just answer that for me, Calvinist. If if it was never my choice, then why am I getting credit for it? Because isn't that always what they want to say? Who gets credit for your salvation? You Arminians, you give yourselves the credit. You saved yourself. You were more righteous than your neighbor. Shame on you, Calvinist. We have never said we're more righteous than our neighbor. We, just like our neighbor, were wicked, dead in sin. We needed to be enlightened. We needed faith. We needed grace. We needed to be freed. But the difference between us and our neighbor is once we were graced, once we were freed, our faith and our trust was put in Jesus, and they kept hardening their hearts. Once again, can you be more blind than a dead man? No, but it says in the Bible they become more blind, more hardened. What does that mean except that you had a choice? You had an an enlightenment as it were. You know, you had a conscious, a, a prick in your conscience, but you resisted it so you became more hardened. You became more blind. That's why when Jesus uses the example of faith, he points to a child. But if we were all born sinners and and hardened in the same way, if as being born sinners, rather, we were all hardened the same way, then why doesn't he just point to an 80-year-old man and say, have faith like him? Because it doesn't matter who you are in age. Faith just comes by God, and it doesn't matter your life experience. Why does he point to a child? Because a child naturally hasn't lived like an 80-year-old man to be hardened by rejecting in his conscience over and over and over again, day after day, after day what christ is doing by reaching out to him the child has a softer heart a more open eye a more open ear to understand what god is saying though this child is born just as much of a sinner as the 80 year old man the child has not been hardened let's just go to hebrews so you don't think i'm making it up hebrews chapter 3 please amen Hebrews chapter three. And, and, and like I said, if I ever debate a Calvinist on this, I just wanna stick only to Romans and the scriptures brought up in Romans. No other uh, bouncing around because I feel like that's how they, they Bible hopscotch uh, and they try to prove their points. But just use Romans and the scriptures used in Romans. That's it. And it will always go against Calvinism every single time. But just because we wanna get the affirmation of the other parts of the scripture, just go to Hebrews chapter three. Excuse me, Hebrews chapter three, verse seven. So as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, see, hear his voice. Isn't that what we call pervenient grace? Hearing the voice. Isn't God reaching out to us? Today if you hear his voice, do not what? Harden your heart. Well, according to the Calvinist, your heart is already hard. And I don't have a choice in whether or not my heart is soft or hard. It's a light switch he turns on. So what's the point of even telling me that then? Just when you hear his voice, Become his robot. When you hear his voice, just do what he says because that's all your heart's gonna wanna do. No, today, using the Jewish people as an example from the time of Moses, that's where this is coming from. Today, you in the New Testament, look back at them as the example. Today, if you hear God's voice, like through our preaching, through the conviction of the Holy Spirit, by looking at your conscience or through creation, do not harden your hearts as you did in rebellion. I thought we were all rebellious until he made us be not rebellious. No, as you're hearing his voice, you have a choice now to continue in your rebellion. As you're drowning and the Coast Guard is coming, do you keep pushing away or do you receive the help? As you did in rebellion during the time of testing in the wilderness. Where your ancestors were tested, where your ancestors tested and tried me. Though for 40 years they saw what I did. That is why I was angry with that generation. I said, their hearts, not everybody's heart, but their heart are always going astray, and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. But did Joshua enter his rest? Did Caleb enter his rest? Why? Is it because God said, i only turn on two light switches and damn all the rest of the million of them to die in the desert or whatever? No. It's because Joshua didn't harden his heart. When he was graced with free will, when he was freed to make a decision, to choose faith, to choose love, he didn't continue hardening, baking in the bad decision. And then now look at the application from the quote from the Old Testament. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. Well, I thought once we were turned on, we could never be turned off. We're once saved, always saved. We're always gonna persevere. What's the point of warning Christians now looking back to that example? Why? Because as a Christian, you can harden your heart and you can stop listening to God. And it's not that sin in and of itself separates you from God because all sin can be forgiven in the Christian's life. It's It's continuing in your sin and rebellion that has you Turn from Christ. You turn to Christ and all of your sins will be forgiven. You have no fear of losing your salvation because of sin as a Christian. But fear God if you don't wanna to listen to God anymore and you wanna turn from him in rebellion and let your heart become hard again. Encourage one another as long as it's called today so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Can a Christian's heart be hardened by sin's deceitfulness? Yes, how? By living in the sin, not repenting of the sin, ignoring the conviction, and then the heart goes back to its original state. As Peter says, now it's worse than it was if it had never been saved. As a dog returns to its vomit and as a pig goes back to the mud. Sounds pretty simple to me. It's almost like you guys want me to debate one here in class. Let them bring their best shot, amen? Let's go back to Romans chapter 4. It's their faith, and it's not a work. It's a gift of God, and it's attributed to the person as righteousness. Verse 6, David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the one whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Why does God give this one righteousness and not that one righteousness? By the faith that they use, the gift that God gave them, they use. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. That's Psalm chapter 32, verses 1 through 2. Is this blessedness only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? Now he goes back to the Jew-Gentile question. We have been saying that Abraham's faith, whose faith? Abraham's faith. He possesses it now. It's up to him what he does with it. Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? And that's all you have to do to the black Hebrew Israelites, to the Seventh day of Venice, to any cult that tries to now bring law upon the Christians and come in direct violations of Romans and Galatians and Hebrews is just ask them, when does a person become justified? Before the law or after the law? How is a person made right with God? By faith or by works? When was Abraham justified? And in that debate we had with them, we rocked him with this. I asked him, when was Abraham justified? Before or after he was circumcised? So how dare you point to any uncircumcised person here that has faith in Jesus and say they're not justified or they're not righteous? <sighs> Praise God for his truth. Amen? Gets me fired up. Paul asked the question, "Was?" What, uh, verse 10, under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? It was not after, but before. That's what it said in Genesis chapter 15, before he was ever circumcised. As a matter of fact, in Genesis 15, does it mention Abraham or Abram being circumcised? No, that's not until chapter 17. So the whole entire, he believes God, credited to righteousness, the the darkness coming, you know, over the sacrifice, and then the promise, all of that before or after circumcision. All before, all before. And let me just insert this in here. Since, you know, we like to take down as many false worldviews as we can in one one sermon. Messing with the Calvinists, messing with the, the legalists, the Hebrew Israelites, and so forth. Now let's mess with Islam. When you read the Quran, which comes 600 years after the New Testament and thousands of years after the Old Testament, does the author of the Quran, which I believe is a demon-possessed man, but let's just use their terms, does the author of the Quran, Allah, understand any of the Jewish scriptures or the Christian scriptures? Do the, does the Quran exegete our scriptures and explain their point of view? No. They make up stories, put words in their mouth, to get them to say, like Jesus said, I'm a Muslim, be a Muslim like me. And it's like, yeah, right. He never said that anywhere, right? But that's what they'll say, Jesus said. So they make up an entirely other Jesus. And and whenever they use a scripture here or there, it's just flung in there without any context. Do you see the difference of how Paul in the New Testament is speaking to the Jewish people? He's going line upon line, precept upon precept, and he's so precise that his entire argument is based on the timeline of a man's life. Was it before or was it after? And all the Jewish people would be like, man, you're respecting Abraham. You're honoring Abraham. You're getting us to look back at Abraham's life. Let's go back to the Torah. Let's go back and look at these, these uh, steps that Abraham took in his journey. When was he declared righteous? Oh, it was, it was during this time where God made that covenant with him. Circumcision didn't come till later. You see how precise the Bible is? I love how the Bible teaches us that it's built upon the foundation of the prophets. The apostles for us now use the prophets. So we can say apostles and prophets, but the apostles use the prophets. And now we build upon the apostles and the prophets. Amen? Just wanted to throw that in there because it's so precise. Verse, Verse 11, and he received circumcision as a sign, a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So just what was it? It was just a sign it was just a seal. It wasn't meant to ever give you righteousness, but it was just meant to be a sign. Now, let me just say this. It is a sign. Let's go to Genesis 17. So you can see this. Uh, Jerry, will you give me some water quickly, please? It's said that it's going to be a sign for all generations. And some people may say, well, then, I mean, Even if it's not for righteousness sake, shouldn't we have that sign for all generations? Well, doesn't Paul answer that in Galatians? Don't they answer that to Jerusalem council? But let's just answer it from the context here. Genesis chapter 17. Can you open it for me, my brother? My hands are tied up here. Thank you. I appreciate that, man. Look at it, what it says. Genesis chapter 17 Verse 7, I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan, where you now reside as a foreigner, I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you. I will be their God. How many get that? That's, that's good right there, right? Now look at verse 9. Then God said, as for you, you must keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you for the generations to come. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you, the covenant you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision, and it will be a sign of the covenant between me and you. For the generations to come, every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised, including those born in your household or brought, bought with money from a foreigner, those who are not of your offspring, whether born in the household or brought Bought with money, you must, uh, they must be circumcised. My covenant in your flesh is to be an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who has, been, uh, who has not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So it sounds like, wow. Well, according to Genesis 15, how long should we do it? Everlasting, everlasting. You know, you're going to shout it out. Let's go back to Romans in case you caught it. Go back to Romans chapter 2, where God deals with circumcision and how it's going to remain everlasting look at it genesis i mean romans chapter 2 verse 25 Circumcision has value if you observe the law but if you break the law you become as though you had not been circumcised. So then if those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements will they not be regarded as those that were circumcised? The one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will be condemned uh, will condemn you who even though you have the written code and are and circumcision are a lawbreaker. A person is not a Jew who is one only outwardly, nor circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. Man, I messed it up because I read too fast. Let me read it again. Verse 25, circumcision has value if you observe the law. But if you break the law, you have become as though you had not been circumcised. So according to Paul, does the circumcision really stand as a sign of righteousness in the new covenant? No, because if you're still breaking the law, it means absolutely nothing. But what does it mean, and where does it mean the most at? Keep going. So then then if those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? Well, hold on. I thought we were only gonna be regarded as righteous if we were circumcised. He says, no, no, isn't it really those who keep the law? Now watch verse 27. The one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you who even though you have the written code and circumcision are a lawbreaker. So the uncircumcised will actually condemn the circumcised if they've been keeping the law. And then now look at verse 28. A person is not a Jew. Uh, who is only one outwardly nor circumcision merely outward and physical no a person is a Jew who is one inwardly and circumcision is circumcision of the what of the heart by the spirit not by the written code what was Abraham? you don't have to say the word but what was Abraham supposed to get circumcised his heart or something else something else, but it was meant to represent his heart. What's Paul now saying? Circumcision really only matters now if it's really been done in your heart. So is there a contradiction? Not at all. It's a fulfillment. And if they go, oh no, that still doesn't work. That still doesn't work. Oh, so a priest does it on the eighth day at the temple. And then they go, oh no, no, that's changed. Well, hold on. That was a forever thing too. Because later on, as Paul gets I mean, as, as Moses gets the law, it's not just on the eighth day by any old person, it's at the eighth day, at the temple by a priest. You see? So some things have changed, even in the legalist Jewish mindset. But they get to determine what's changed and what's fulfilled. So I always say to them, we both agree things have changed and been fulfilled. Let's go by the standard of the New Testament and what's been changed and been fulfilled. Circumcision, is it still good? Yes. Does it still matter? Yes. But does it matter on the private part of a man? No, it matters in the heart by the Spirit. Amen? In the context, in the context right there. Now, let's continue on. Verse 11, And he received circumcision as a sign, a seal of righteousness, that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So then he is the father of all who believe but have not been circumcised. So it doesn't matter if you're circumcised or not, have you believed? If you have, your heart has been circumcised in order that righteousness might be credited to them. And he is then also the father of the circumcised, who not only are circumcised, but also following the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. So hey, are you a Jew living in the first century that's been circumcised? Great. Now be circumcised in the heart and live like Abraham. Are you a Gentile that's uncircumcised physically? Get born again, have your your heart circumcised like Abraham's heart was changed, and now follow God. There it is, that's the example. Verse 13, it was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise. See, it wasn't through the law because the law hadn't even really fully come until Moses' time. It says that it didn't come through the law and his offspring received the promise that they would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. For it is those who depend on the law, for if those who depend on the law are heirs, faith means nothing, and the promise is worthless. why? Because we've all fallen short of that law. because the law brings wrath, and where there is no law, there is no transgression. and this goes back to. Well, were the Gentiles without the law? No, the Bible says the law was written on their heart in Romans chapter 2, 13 through 16. So has anybody ever really been without the the moral law? No. Has there been times when people have been without the Mosaic 613 law? Yes, and and, and I'll prove my point that it's the moral law because whenever Paul mentions the law in this context, what does he always talk about? Thou shall not covet, thou shall not commit adultery, thou shall not murder, all of those things. It's always found in the 10 commandments commandments. Everyone except the Sabbath, because the Sabbath was a ritual law. Nine out of the 10 are the moral law. Verse 16, therefore the promise comes by faith, so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who have the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. And then I've had the black Hebrew Israelites try to say, these nations only refer refer to where the Jewish people were dispersed. That is a lie. Ethos right there is used in the context, especially in the New Testament, of Gentiles. You can go through the King James and see that same Greek word, nations, be for Greeks and Gentiles. Compared to the Romans, he came for the Jews and for the ethoses of the world. These are a specific group of people outside of Judaism. He is the father of them too. Why? Because we are grafted in through Christ by faith. He is our father in the sight of God in whom he believed. The God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. Against all hope, Abraham, in hope, believed, and so became the father of many nations. Nation of Israel, is just one nation, come on, but many nations. Just like it says in Revelation, every nation, tribe, and tongue will be represented in heaven. Just uh, Just as it has been said, so shall your offspring be. And that... Scripture, just uh, your offspring is Genesis 15, 5. We've already read that. Without weakening in his faith. See, that was his choice to say strong in faith, wasn't it? Just like how Jesus rewarded those who had strong faith. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead, about 90 years old. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he promised. Do you have power? Uh, do you have, are you persuaded to believe that God has the power to do what he promised? That is why it was credited to him as righteousness. You see all what Abraham did here? He did it by God's strength and power, but it was his choice to remain in faith and not turn to unbelief. That's why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words, now look at how precise he gets again. The words it was credited to him were written not for him alone, but also for us to whom God will credit righteousness for us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and raised to life for our justification. Amen, would you scroll to the bottom there, please? Put your name in the blank. Joe believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Vinny, Sadia, Desiree, Jackie, Will, TJ, Lawrence, Oscar. You guys are so impressed, I remember everybody's names. Jared believed God, and it was credited to them as righteousness. Righteousness. Is it your choice to first reach out to God? No, it's He that reaches out to us. But after He reaches out, is it your choice to receive the gift of grace and faith and a freed will and to choose Him? Absolutely. Is it your choice to come out of spiritual blindness and to be able to see Him? In one sense, no. Because without Him making the first choice to love you and to give you light, you never would have had that choice. But after he gives you that light, after the gospel comes, is it your choice to remain in darkness or to go to the light? Absolutely. Go to John 3.16 in closing please. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son That whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. How many people are in the world? Everybody. How many does that mean he loves? Everybody. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be plainly seen that what they have done has been done in the sight of of God. Isn't it awesome? Come on. When the word of God confirms what we learn in one book to another, let's all stand up, please. And let's pray. Father, we thank you that you loved us so much that you sent Jesus into the world. We thank you that he's the light of the world and the darkness can overcome it. We thank you that each one of us, once we have the grace, once we are given the word, once our consciences are pricked, we get a choice to make, to choose you or to remain in darkness. Thank you, Father, for being just and fair. Thank you for in your sovereignty, in your own power and glory, you have given us a choice. You didn't have to do it so, but you did. And we glorify you, Father, that in that choice you give us, you give us empowerment when we choose you and the direct consequence of our evil behavior when we reject you. No man on Judgment Day will be able to blame you. And we thank you for being gracious and kind to us. We choose you. We choose you today. We respond to you out of love and gratitude. And we ask you, oh Father, by the power of the Holy Spirit, to continue to renew us, to make our minds new, to teach us your ways, to grow us spiritually, to give us the kingdom, that is to come, that we would have you for eternity, that you would keep us, that you would finish what you started in us, and that, Lord, even if we become weak, you would not turn from us, but you would strengthen us, oh God, so that we wouldn't let our hearts be hardened, that we wouldn't turn from you and follow the deception of sin. We just surrender our will to yours today, and we choose you, and we thank you, That salvation was freely given to us. That faith was freely given to us. And yet at the same time, when we choose you, you credit it back to us. You reward us with your presence, with treasures forevermore. We are so grateful to be uh, your sons and daughters in Jesus' name. And everybody said,